Hi, and welcome to today's podcast, Establishing Your Compliance Program, part of our series focusing on starting an RIA. I'm Libby Hall, and with me are Oyster CEO, Buddy Doyle, and consultants, Sarah Sutton and Jay Donlin. Today, we're going to be talking about the regulatory aspect of starting an RIA. There are some basic things you need to do to get started, as well as some regulatory perspectives you might consider. Buddy, why don't you take it from here? Hi, everybody. I'm Buddy Doyle. I'm pleased to be joined today by Jay Donlin and Sarah Sutton, two of our experts on RIAs and have helped a number of our clients move from where they were to where they're going. And I think that uh, we're pleased to have you here. Jay, Sarah, welcome. Thanks, Buddy. Thanks, Buddy. Good to be here. You know, one of the things that, that we often hear from firms, particularly the ones that are losing the reps to go out and start their own RIA is they're chasing less regulation. I actually think it's a different regulation, but I'm, I'm not sure it's less. Sarah, you work with a lot of our RIA clients on the, the compliance front of things. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, on, on that front, there is a regulatory rigmarole to go through to start an RIA as well. But can you talk, Sarah, a little bit about the regulatory side of things and getting started? Sure, yeah. And, you know, that's that's one of the, you know, quote unquote, maybe scary items that, you know, some folks have not had to directly experience uh, in their previous life, whether they were, you know, with um, a broker dealer or, you know, a regional firm. So when you are looking at some of those types of responsibilities, the one thing that you will have to do is have to name a CCO. And that can be, you know, you, the owner. It could be someone else that comes over on your team, depending on, you know, how you structure your firm initially. But that's one of the one of the things you'll have to have a comfort level with is who is going to be your CCO. There is less regulation currently in the RAA space versus the broker dealer space. But at the same time, there are a lot of things that you have to comply and address throughout the year. Uh, what we recommend is working with or using a compliance calendar or program, and that will help you navigate through all of the different items and things that you'll have to do on a, a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual basis. There are some regulatory filings that you'll also have to be aware of and make sure that they're done in a timely manner. First thing you'll have to do is register with the SEC. And that's a process that can take a little bit of time and take some planning and preparation, but you can navigate through it if it's what you truly would like to do. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about becoming an RIA is there are so many options available to you. You've got the regulatory side of this that needs to marry the way you do your business. And so when you start your RIA on the regulatory side of things, you'll answer some questions to complete what's called an ADV-1, which is a, a notice to a public document that describes sort of Q&A, you know, check the box type of answers. And then you have an ADV-2 brochure that would describe supposedly in plain English or as close as you can get to it and still comply with regulations to allow your customer to know all of your conflicts of interest and to understand how you're going to serve them and the services you're going to 
uh, undertake, how you're going to make decisions on where to direct trades, how you're going to look at risk in portfolios, describe your fees very clearly. And when you're thinking about that, one of the things you need to consider as you're coming out of a wire house or an independent rep firm even, is that your mindset and the regulator's mindset may not exactly be aligned in what is a, a material conflict of interest. So you'll want to go through this process of thinking through the risk you're taking as you describe how you do things and and, and might want to think about in your disclosures sort of going a little further than you may have felt when you were talking to your compliance department at, at your firm, because when they come in to do an exam uh, from the SEC or a state, and they all have their point of view that they're going to bring to that, that may not line up with yours. It's much different than a branch exam that you may have gone through in your past. Your compliance team uh, at your current organization they may seem grumpy, but that's because they're the ones interacting with the regulators and feeling the heat there. And not that you'll feel heat. You can go through exams and do really well. But just keep in mind as you're going through this process, you want to question your own judgment on these things and, and be open-minded and having people to bounce that around with. That I would encourage you to talk to people that have run an RIA and gone through an exam and say, what was that like? I'd encourage you to talk to compliance professionals and experienced folks like Jay and, and Sarah to, to talk about sort of what we've seen out there. Get good advice along the way. When we started Oyster, we had a very significant business plan that we developed and implemented. And then, of course, I think it was Mike Tyson that said, everybody's got a plan until you're punched in the face. Just realize when you get going, you also need to reassess pretty quickly how things are going and, and make those quick decisions quickly. Again, there are consequences to, to all of this stuff and everybody hates consequences. But I think from a regulatory perspective, again, there's that component that's always hanging out there of the rules are set, right? And, but you don't necessarily know them all. And then in FINRA, it's a more rules-based type of approach with a little bit more detail around what's good, what's not good. In, in the SEC world, it's principles-based. And so it's, it's a little more squishy around things and how you guess the way to uh, approach things or how you know the way to approach things as part of your experience will make a big difference to you. And we we talked a little bit, Sarah, about the difference between being in a firm uh, from a regulatory perspective, being in your own firm from a regulatory perspective. And you've been on both sides of this. What's the difference between really being a branch audit and an SEC audit? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So again, like you mentioned, the kind of the rules-based versus the principle-based, you know, so there's, there's rules on both sides of the field. Um, as there are everywhere. When you get audited by the SEC or you're abiding by the SEC's rules, it's the same as abiding by FINRA. There are just a few things that you have more flexibility on. The, the folks that were in kind of the broker-dealer, wirehouse 
go into the branch every day and the lights are turned on. They saw that they didn't have as much flexibility as others did in the RIA world. And that was very attractive to a lot of folks. There's still the regulatory side of it, but you have the flexibility of being able to choose how you run your business. You're not being told directly what you need to do, what you need to sell, what you need to offer. From the regulatory standpoint and books and records, how you're servicing your clients, you know, Betty had mentioned that on the RAA side, you're a fiduciary and it's possible that before you were not for all of your clients working in that fiduciary capacity. And it's a change in mindset, but it's something that I think a lot of RIA owners and advisors really kind of are very open to because it helps them from the standpoint of being able to help their clients manage their assets, their futures, their, their well-being and not having such stringent guidelines from a larger firm is helpful in many respects. We look at the books and records and you know what you have to have to set up an RIA. Again, it's very similar to the branch audits that you would that you may or may not have been involved in in your previous experience and you still have to have client records, you still have to document your investment allocation decisions, you still have to keep up with how often you're meeting with clients. Again, there are some additional filings that, or there are some filings for regulatory standpoint with the SEC that you'll have to do that you probably never had to do before. And those might seem scary, but they're just documents that you have to fill out. So you uh, definitely need to make sure that you do it right the first time then. When you do start out as an RIA, there is a, a good chance that the SEC will come in and inspect your office kind of an initial inspection within the first year. We've seen that very recently kind of increase. The, the time period has been moved up, but we've also seen an increase in folks moving to the RAA space as well. So it's nothing to be afraid of. Actually, it's one of those things is you're you're going to be working with a regulator, so embrace it. Make sure that you're you're ready for it, you're open, you're honest, and that you can supply anything that they ask for. So again, that from a documentation standpoint, a branch audit and an SEC audit is very similar. You're gonna to have to produce some of the same documents you had before. Some of the things that will be basically not as readily available initially uh, are some of the things that you're gonna to have to, you know, work with your legal counsel and, you know, kind of get in place, which are gonna be your advisory agreements. You know, they're not just provided for you, so. There's, you know, some things like that that, again, you'll need to make sure that based on the business that you you want to have, that as you build it out, you get to kind of tweak those finer points to make sure, again, that you're offering your clients what they want, what you want to offer, build it out the way you want it, but it all has to be reflected in um, the documents as you structure your company, the agreements you have with your clients, and the service level you offer your clients as well. Yeah, and I think it's it's really kind of important to keep in mind to to Sarah's point the the fact that you're running your business in different ways, you do have that flexibility. We have clients that it was fantastic when we started Oyster and get out, got out there to different business models and ways people operated, but we can see two clients in a day, and one will be 
a financial planner putting together Monte Carlo financial plans for their clients, cash flow analysis, and creating portfolios with with ETFs to try to achieve their goals and in a low cost manner to and their benchmark is the plan, right? We're we're targeting the retirement plan. And then you can go to we can go to another customer that is more of a we run models for different clients for different time horizons and risk tolerances and uh, we tactically tilt and try to beat the market and our our benchmark is not the plan but our benchmark is an index or a a custom index even and they're both right uh, and they're both can be compliant but they have to be described in very different ways to the customer so that your clients or customers really understand how you're operating. And then there are rules and regulations around how you make different decisions. And when you select a custodian, did you select a custodian or did you select a a number of custodians? When you select your products, your products weren't selected for you. You're selecting your products. What's the analysis that's gone into that? And I think certainly we see both sides of of the coin here uh, because your clients are your clients. They have certain needs, certain expectations, and you're trying to serve them. Your business is unique, and it, your programs need to be unique. And Jake, then come back to this custodian, which I know is more and more becoming homogenistic, maybe, but it really isn't, right? Because we see our clients using custodians in a lot of different ways with a lot of different tools. But what are some of the things that that you guide clients through in, in that custodian selection process that does make a difference. Yeah, buddy. Um, one thing that, that you kind of brought up was this relates to fiduciary and conflicts. And, and we have actually seen clients that thought that they had disclosures about, you know, fees and client fees that the custodians nailed or, or any kind of revenue sharing that they might be getting. And they thought they had it perfectly disclosed in, in whatever, you know, ADV language that they, they had constructed. And the regulator still came down on them, said, no, 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 this is something that we don't want you doing. And so one of the things that we look at is the breadth of products and services offered by the custodians. Just a basic blocking and tackling, they all have got down, but they all have different products. And depending on your client needs, you may want to have multiple custodians because you may have different client needs that are serviced better by two different custodians. And one of the things that we help you walk through is what do I need? You know, what are, what are my wants, my wishes, and my needs? And document those and kind of try to align them through a decisioning process, a, a matrix, so to speak, where you're figuring out where all the various custodians stack up in those to meet those needs and so that's the process that we walk uh, clients through in order to kind of make sure that if they need to have multiple then that's what they have you know if they just have one that kind of services what their client needs are great but you have to be willing to defend your custodian choice to the regulators we've had clients come in and and uh, basically the regulators have said you need to do a custodian review. Why are you on this custodian? This firm only had one custodian. It's not that they were, it was a bad custodian and that there was different things, but are you getting the best deal for your clients? 
are you meeting your client's needs the most effective on this particular custodian? These are items that you need to go through periodically, not just on your initial, because things change. Custodians change, needs within the market changes, needs within your clients change. And you need to review this periodically just to say, hey, am I still with the right custodian or do I need to go get another one or do I need to transition? It's something the regulators have actually questioned in their reviews. And they certainly will. And I think when you have a custodian or you have multiple custodians, when you have multiple custodians, you've got sort of a different decision tree to, to support your analysis with, right? Why did I pick one custodian over another for this particular account or this particular household? You know, when you have multiple custodians, there are some challenges in dealing with, with clients that are on two platforms, at least at the core. A lot of this RIA stuff and a lot of the regulation stuff, it's you go back to seventh grade algebra. It's showing your work in the margins. Why did I make this decision? What was the math behind it? What was the rationale behind it? And you have to be able to back that up. And when you have more paths, you have to show the decision around which path you chose, client by client, account by account. The other thing, Jay, I, I, I think is you, you mentioned different fees, different pricing structures, different products that, that are offered. Don't be bashful in your disclosure. Put it out there. Be blunt. Be overt in your disclosure. And it's, it's really important because regulators read that stuff and they put their own point of view on it. And that point of view may have very little to do with what you're doing, but it has more to do with what they see in the overall marketplace. And if you've got your work documented pretty well, you're going to be better off when they're, quite frankly, second-guessing your judgment potentially over, over those decisions. And Sarah, I know you go through this thumb wrestle with regulators on a pretty routine basis because uh, you're more in the compliance side of things here. But uh, do you do you see any distinctions with that multi-custodial uh, approach that beyond what we've kind of mentioned here? Yeah, so I think like you'd mentioned before, really just making sure that you disclose what is available to the clients and basically the decision tree, how you come to the decision to recommend one custodian over another custodian for a client. Um, custodians don't always offer the same products like we just talked about. So you may have one custodian that has a lower cost mutual fund um, share class and another custodian does not offer it. It's just not on their platform. So those are the kinds of things kind of really getting into the weeds you have to think about a topic that the SEC is has been looking at pretty carefully um, here recently. And we've really encountered if you aren't sure if you should disclose it, just disclose it. It's easier to explain why it's there than why it's not there. And I think that at first is kind of hard for some folks to maybe not realize, but come to the come to the conclusion of. But when you're sitting across from an auditor and you're having to answer, you know, exactly why you had specific conversations with clients, why you recommended um, a particular investment or a particular custodian, it comes down to, you know, the level of detail that that you've discussed with your client. Um, and again, that's in the documents that you have. It's in the process um, on how you work with and manage your client's assets. 
and um, the level of service you provide. So you, it's going back to if you have a client or a client base that you don't want to offer, um, you know, all of your services to, you have to document that. You can have different platforms um, where it's um, more of a sub-advisor for you, where you're not having to do as much hand-holding per se with clients that may be in the earning phase of their life. So they haven't acquired that wealth yet, but they will because their parents or grandparents are clients of yours that you do offer a higher level of service for. So it's, it's looking at those different aspects and how you can really manage your, your client's expectations and then, you know, appease the regulators so that they know that you're doing what's in the best interest of the client. Yeah, you, you have to shift your mindset a little bit as a financial advisor when you, when you start your own RIA. The financial advisors I know that, that I've worked with in wirehouses and at regional firms and, and uh, boutique firms and all the way through, they all tend to have this desire to help their clients meet their financial goals and objectives. But when you run your own RIA, you have to think about this conflict of interest thing. And the one thing I would encourage you to do as you go through this process is conflicts of interest. Think about, does it impact the fees that your client pays directly or indirectly? Uh, yes or no. Uh, and does it impact the fee that you receive or you pay uh, directly or indirectly? to your custodian or to anybody else? And if the answer to those questions are yes, there's a conflict in there, right? And you may be managing that conflict perfectly, but it's still a conflict. And so you have to kind of separate the, I'm doing the right thing for my client all the time. Do I now have a regulator out there that looks at 15,000 different organizations, you know, sees the worst in people, who's going to come in here with a mindset from their experience and demand that you prove you're doing it right. And I think as we've seen the RIA market flourish and, and the numbers grow, we've also seen that regulatory scrutiny really start amping up as it becomes more and more of a material marketplace issue in how people in this country receive financial services. Um, now, I don't want to scare you away from it because, again, I think people have done this and they've done this successfully. And you're, you know, if you're thinking about doing this, you're about to boldly go where, you know, tens of thousands of others have gone before and survive. That with that, we're going to wrap it up for today. Thank you guys for sharing your wisdom with the listeners. Join us for more upcoming podcasts on starting your own RIA. If you'd like to learn more about how Oyster can help you, contact us at oysterllc.com and we'll be happy to chat. If you like what you heard today, follow us on whatever podcast platform you listen to and give us a review. Reviews make it easier for people to find us. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you.